Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. This reading's taken from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Evening, everyone. Evening. Evening, everyone. This side. Evening. This side were very strong when the, when the greeting. Thank you. Fantastic. So my name's Eve. I'm the clergy leader here. One of the uh, vicars. One of the clergy team. And uh, it's exciting to continue and to close out our series on mountains in the Bible and what they teach us about God and about who Jesus is as we um, go through these peaks. And this is the final peak in the mountain range that we are scaling today. And uh, we've been thinking about five different mountains on our uh, hiking, on our trek. The first week, we went to Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac, and we learned that God provides. Then we went to Mount Sinai where God gave Moses and the people of God the law, and we learned that God is holy, but he frees us to worship him. And then we heard um, from Mark Powley on the Beatitudes, the teaching of Jesus, learning that the kingdom is coming, that the future is good, the future is God. And then we witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus recognizing that Jesus is God completely and that that changes how we see the world. And today we come to the final peak and we think about the Great Commission, how in our coming and going, God is with us. Or more to the point, Jesus comes to us so that we can go. Now, unlike the take of Miley Cyrus, um, it's not all about the climb. Yeah, some people get it. Does anyone? Yeah, it's, it's the climb. Yeah, it's great. It's a good song. Um, it's a fine song. Um, so unlike that take, and that's kind of where our culture is at, it's about the journey. It's about the climb. Um, I think what we discover at the summit of the mountain, the destination is important. The disciples and others on these mountains climbed to encounter God in a particular way and they were left changed forever. So yes, the ascent and the descent do shape us, 
And we think about that in the mountaintop and the valley experiences in our lives. But there is a personable, personal, knowable, awesome God who gives meaning and purpose to the climbs and the experiences at the summit and gives purpose and comfort in the valleys. So sometimes in our culture when we're encouraged to think it's just about the journey, it doesn't matter about where we get to. The mountains in the Bible tell us it does matter who's at the top of the mountain, it does matter who we meet and who changes us. And on this mountain, we meet Jesus, the authority and the authoritative and vindicated teacher, the great I am. Vindicated means to have been proven right in who he is and what he's done. And Jesus comes to the disciples so that they might go in his name. So we come to what we know as the Great Commission, and we know it because in our Bibles, there are little subtitles that weren't written by the original authors, but are mostly helpful um, for knowing what's going on. And it is a Great Commission, both in kind of scale and from the one who gives it. And Mark Powley, who's been preaching in this series, encouraged us to read these passages and come to these experiences with open hearts in Scripture, not to read something that happened a long time ago, but to encounter the living Jesus, so that when we read these passages, we see what the disciples saw. And here, we hear some of Jesus' final words to his disciples that he made in the flesh, albeit in his resurrected body. When I used to live in York, I worked at one church, and our sister church um, had some friends of mine in it, and they had a talk, this is years ago, and I still remember it, on the Great Commission. And um, the, the preacher was a member of the congregation, and they, they summarized the Great Commission in the idea of, uh, if in doubt, always follow last orders from the kind of authority person. And in this case, that's Jesus. If we're ever not sure if we're living the Jesus life, we can look to the Great Commission, say, am I following last orders? And now the Sermon on the Mount is a pretty good place to go as well. Am I following the teaching of Jesus? Let's go to his teaching, which Mark Powley covered. And also in the Great Commission, we have sort of Matthew, the, the gospel author's kind of table of contents of his account of Jesus' life, summarized and located at the end. Summarizes all of what Jesus did in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And as we look to this encounter tonight, um, I'm going to use some of the the titles, the questions that Mark used last week, because I, I think it helps us place ourselves in this encounter. So we're going to ask what happens on the mountain, what we learn on the mountain, and what happens after the mountain. And today, particularly with this commission to go, I think how we hear that commission after the mountain, thousands of years later, is important. So what happens on the mountain? Well, we acknowledge that in this short passage that we heard that comes right at the end of the gospel, there is the word then, 
which implies something happened before it. And that sets the context for the Great Commission. So we are reading this in the light of Matthew's account of the resurrection. When the women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and others, meet uh, the angel as they are looking for Jesus. And then they encounter the risen Jesus. And they, try, and they worship him. Interestingly, they worship him and don't doubt. The disciples later on uh, do doubt all the men. It's interesting. Anyway. But then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And this is what is happening here. The 11 disciples have faithfully gone to where Jesus told them to be. So the women have had their own resurrection experience at the empty tomb before Jesus' final words to his apostles, his disciples. And this is um, Matthew's account and perspective. The different gospel authors shine a, a light on different aspects of Jesus and uh, they highlight different things for us. And we read this now. We can read it, you know, with the other Gospels, um, but we don't have to try and mash them completely all together, although you can read them kind of next to each other online and in um, certain printed Gospel editions. But what we're reading here is Matthew's perspective, so it's not the same as the Emmaus Road appearance in Luke or John's beachside barbecue or the abrupt ending of Mark. But here we meet Jesus commissioning his disciples. And we can assume that this resurrection appearance um, might have happened, or the other resurrection appearances happened before this, and that after this, Jesus ascended to heaven. That's what we read in Luke and Acts, um, in Luke's account. So let's look at what actually happens on the mountain. I put it in a nice list for you. Um, this is literally the Bible, guys, but this is what happened. Um, Jesus came to them where he had told them to go. So he said, gather there and I'll come and meet you. And we see that the response from the disciples is they worshipped him, they acknowledged him as Lord, they praised him, and some doubted. And then in the passage, we see that Jesus reaffirms who he is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the Lord's, I am the Father's anointed one, I'm the chosen one. I've been vindicated in my life and my death and the resurrection. The authority of the Father has been given to him. And then he directs the disciples into the future with his authority. And he says, go, make disciples, which we'll think about in a moment, baptize them, and teach them all that I have commanded you to do, which we looked at in the Beatitudes particularly. We know what Jesus' teaching looks like. And then he closes by saying, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And in Matthew's account, we finish there. We don't then have the ascension, but we finish there on this like springboard of what will happen next for the disciples. So one commentator shares that this passage is a charge given by Jesus to his disciples 
in order that they may continually reproduce themselves more disciples of Jesus in the world for as long as Christ desires. And Matthew uses five lines to present this scenario. He's quite concise. He covers the characters and the setting. He moves on to their circumstances where this is going to happen. And he gives them motivation for their action. He tells them what to do and how to do it. And then he closes with a promise that only God can make. I, the I am, will be with you. And so he invites them to make disciples of all nations by creating communities of obedience to Jesus among the nations. And we see the initial response to Jesus of the disciples, as I said, some worshipped, some doubted, and they worshipped, which one writer calls uh, that they worshipped, but some wavered, the worship and the waver. I felt that was a helpful way of sometimes how we respond to God. And we don't know what their immediate response was, although we do then read about their response to the ascension in Luke and Acts, and that they indeed went after Pentecost when they were filled with the Spirit. And just a note on that worship and that doubt. Some of us, depending on where we're coming from, when we're reading the scripture or what we've heard before, can think that doubt is the worst thing in the world for a Christian, that it means you're a bad Christian. But we see here that worship and doubt are not opposites. Another writer says doubt and fidelity or faithfulness to the mission of God are not mutually exclusive. Because doubt can hinder our trust. There's doubt and trust are more kind of opposites. It can hinder our trust in Jesus. But doubt doesn't necessarily stop us from obeying Jesus, from doing the things that Jesus invited us to do. And often, that's how we see that God is faithful and that when we follow what he says, he delivers and that he is indeed with us. So that's what happens. So what do we learn on the mountain? I think we learn about and we meet Jesus, the one in whom the authority of God, the creator of the universe, is found. We learn that this, even with this authority, Jesus is still gracious and kind to come to us so that we might go. And we might remember from the series that Jesus taught on the mountain, he was transfigured on a mountain, and he's now presented as this authoritative teacher, this voice of God, the great I am. And Matthew highlights this idea of Jesus as uh, this authoritative teacher throughout his gospel. Jesus appeals to himself, to his own authority, not to kind of name-dropping the big rabbis of the day. He's the one who can forgive and pronounce forgiveness of sins, which only God can do. And his words have world-changing power for people as he heals, as he casts out demons. And the crowds who heard him, we see this in Matthew 7, were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And in Mark chapter 1, the crowd say, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Because he commands even the unclean spirits to obey him. In other places we hear, see him calm the storm with a word. 
So Jesus now has the whole authority of the Father. And that is what he is commissioning his disciples in. So when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, what does that mean? Well, we learn what that means in the New Testament because the New Testament authors, and particularly Paul, understand this, particularly when he meets the risen Christ, that he understands that God, Jesus is God in person and that the resurrected Jesus is the fullness of God, the very life of God. In Colossians, you might know that passage that Christ is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the linchpin of creation. And to the Philippian church, Paul writes that the resurrected Jesus was highly exalted because he was obedient to the Father's will. And the Father bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And now, amazingly, Jesus is choosing to share his authority with his disciples, and then with us. That his world-changing words and the authoritative name of Jesus would spread across the nations. Another commentator says in verse 18, where he says, all authority has been given to me, Jesus is a man with authority. Some of us might remember the story of the um, Roman centurion who goes to Jesus, who recognizes that Jesus has authority over uh, darkness, and he says, I'm also a man under authority, and I can see that you are doing the will of the Father of God. So Jesus received this authority from God the Father, and in this passage, he's transferring the power to his disciples so that they can fulfill the Great Commission. This authority, according to Jesus, actually precedes the Great Commission. It's not like he's now just got this authority, but the process, because the process of making disciples of all nations is a divine assignment given to us who follow Jesus that the disciples cannot fulfill by their own power. Making disciples of others is not something that we can do in our own power and strength. The Spirit of God, the power and authority of Jesus is involved. And we might recognize there's lots of claims to authority, to power in our world and our culture. But here we see Jesus is Lord, that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. No one else can compare. And as well as meeting Jesus, the great I am, we also learn some things from Matthew's perspective. We learn some exciting things that um, have some ology words. I love a bit of ology. We learn Matthew's Christology, who Jesus is. That for Matthew, Jesus is an authoritative teacher and healer. He is the vindicated, the proven Messiah sent by God. But he's not just a teacher or a rabbi. He is the Lord, the heavenly teacher. 
So we learn who Jesus is. We also learn Matthew's ecclesiology, what he thinks the church or the body of Christ at this point is all about. It's disciples of all nations who worship and obey Jesus, seeking his kingdom in the world. And so we learn how the church should be identifiable in the world. And we learn Matthew's perspective on the shape of salvation history, how God is saving the world. And that's in that promise, I am with you. We saw that in the giving of the law and in the exodus that we looked at um, last year, how the presence of God in fire and in cloud went with the people of God. We see that in the prophets, how God continually promises to be with his people, despite their rebellion, despite their going away and coming back to him. And we see it in the birth of Jesus. From the beginning of this gospel, chapter one, we see that when Joseph understands in a dream that he's not to divorce Mary, but he's to be the earthly father of Jesus and to call him Jesus, that Matthew says, this is to fulfill the prophet and the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. So the way that God goes about saving us is to come and be with us. And last week, with the transfiguration, when Mark was speaking to us, he noted that uh, the Father's voice there, again, like in Jesus' baptism, speaks and reaffirms who Jesus is. This is my son. Listen to him. And in this passage, we don't get that. The Father no longer speaks for the Son. Here, the resurrected Jesus speaks about who he is. This is the new status of the risen one. It's not that the Father can't speak for Jesus or doesn't need to, or like Jesus has weirdly grown up. It's that now uh, Jesus lowered himself in the incarnation and coming to us, lived that human life, was the perfect sacrifice, obedient to the will of the Father. And now in his fullness, in his resurrection, is the proven, alive, indestructible life of God. So now Jesus, the resurrected one, can say, all authority has been given to me. I am the Son. Listen to me. And then he promises, we see in other passages, he promises the Spirit to his disciples who also, that also testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. So just as the Beatitudes, the teaching of Jesus, is really more of a prophetic statement of the kingdom coming reality, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, rather than this is how you earn God's love and salvation, the Great Commission is this authoritative charge of how Jesus will be and what they'll be doing, rather than this is how you earn God's love or salvation. This is, if you're following Jesus, you've been given the authority of Christ, this is the kind of thing that you'll be doing for the whole of your life. So that's what we learn on the mountain at the time. So what happens after the mountain? Well, the disciples go. 
Actually, they wait. <laughs> this is where the passages are interesting because they do wait because also Jesus asks them to wait in Jerusalem because he's going to give them the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to divide up too much the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit because they're God. But it's interesting to see how they go together. We have both the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to live this kingdom life. So if you want to see what happens next, read Acts for December. Don't start now. Um, read Acts to see what happens after this commission. And I want to um, think about not just what happens in the early church, but what happens for us. When we read this passage, when we encounter the risen Christ, what happens in us and through us after this mountain? Maybe this is a passage that we've read many times. Maybe it's like, we're preaching on the Great Commission tonight, and everyone's like, yeah, I sort of know that. Maybe you've not heard it before, or it's one of the first times that you're going through the Gospels and that you're hearing these words of Jesus. I hope, for all our sakes and for the church, that this is not a dry passage to us, but it's the living word of Jesus that is inviting us to respond today. So when we come and follow Jesus, we've seen that in the baptisms recently, we're seeing that in the confirmations, we also then go with the authority of Christ. So we could make this some academic exercise in studying mission and evangelism in the church and go through that, and that's important to learn from, but we also want to live this passage now in our time and place. So this passage is a good model, an adequate model for a church mission program, setting a vision, all of that kind of thing. Um, but it doesn't always tell us the hows in our context, how best to make disciples of people, how best to offer the gospel, like Dan was talking about, in a fresh way that connects with people. It doesn't always tell us how the teaching of Jesus um, in social justice, in seeing dignity restored to people, will look in our time and place. We need to do some work. It requires care and compassion and curiosity, not just a blanket application. And we also learn from that in history of when the church has fallen short of being curious, of being compassionate to those they seek to share the gospel with. So as I said at the beginning, the summit and destination, the who does matter. It's not all about the climb, but it is about cost. There is cost to this. And I found on a tourist blog site, so um, Mount Arbel is, is traditionally understood as the mount that the Great Commission happened on, okay? And um, this uh, blogger who has like tours and stuff says, the way to the summit of Mount Arbel, so somewhere near where Jesus might have given this commission, used to be a 45 minute trek up, sometimes through ankle deep mud, along donkey and cow paths and what they leave behind. But the Israel Parks Authority has simplified the access to the summit by cons constructing a parking uh, lot, that's American, a car park, um, so that you can drive there and then the walk to the summit now is only about 10 minutes uphill. And there are now bathrooms and an entrance fee. 
So it's interesting because this view from the Mount of the Great Commission is more accessible than ever in times of peace in the Holy Land. But there's no cost, really, to kind of get out there apart from the car parking fee. You know, it's easy to make that walk to encounter what might be there. And I think we're reminded of this, that the invitation to follow Jesus as, this, as the authority of God, the one who loved us so that he laid down his life for us, that we might be saved and go in the power of his name, it did cost something. It cost Jesus his life, but it's a free gift to us. And so when we're thinking about living out the Great Commission, we remember that we do it in response to this free gift, not because we're earning God's love or salvation. And last week in the morning, we had Crip Sunday. We celebrated the work of the Crip downstairs. And Lizzie was preaching and spoke about real faith from James. And she summarized what this looks like to operate out of the gift of salvation from God rather than earning. So I just want to play this for us. It's on our social media as well. So let's have a watch of this. The Bible is really clear that our salvation depends on Jesus, not on ourselves. The technical expression is that we are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Now, grace means that it's the gift of God. Jesus won salvation for us at great cost on the cross. And now he gives it to us. It's a free gift. We receive this gift of salvation through faith. And that means that we choose to put our trust in Jesus. We trust in his love. We trust in the power of the cross. And that's it. That's all we have to do. So good works don't come before salvation as a way to earn it. But as we've seen today, they do come afterwards. Fantastic. I felt that was really clear and it sort of preached to me even after the time. So as we think about this, we're responding that our good works of living out the Great Commission come after salvation. If you're not yet following Jesus, as we talk about the Great Commission, this isn't the route to salvation, to knowing God. Jesus on the cross is the route to knowing God and having that relationship with him, trusting in his life and his death and his resurrection. So if you're coming to this not quite trusting in Jesus yet, then I invite you to, to make that step first or to talk to one of us afterwards. And then the Great Commission is your commission for life. So we go in this Great Commission as a response to who Jesus is into our everyday lives. And for some, there might be sometimes a call to go to a particular place in the world. And this has been often the idea in global missions. And we have people in our congregation and mission partners that serve in different parts of the world or unreached people groups uh, to preach the gospel. But today I want to think about us going into our everyday. And uh, as we sort of commission ourselves to live the Great Commission, 
I was just thinking about this word, go. Um, and if you've ever seen any of those kind of word association kind of song challenges online, I was thinking about a few different songs. Um, and there were three that came to mind, so I'm just going to sing them briefly to you. Not the whole songs, don't worry. <laughs> what is she doing? Um, the first one I thought of, I'm going to hum it. What am I singing? I can go the distance. Thank you, James. Excellent work. So that was the first one I thought of the wonderful Disney film Hercules. You should all watch it over the Christmas season. So that sounds good. I can go the distance. But then the, the final line of that song is, I will go most anywhere to find where I belong. So it's like, I, I don't know who I am. I've got to achieve something. I've got to win people's hearts. And that's not what this going is about because we know who we are in Jesus. We've been given a commission from the great I am. The other one. Um, yeah, you got it, you got it. Go walk out the door, turn around, you're not welcome. Um, that is a song of a sort of breakup moment of saying, you go, I'm staying here, we're not in relationship anymore. That is not the kind of going that is here. God is not sending us out alone, saying, I, you have to do it on your own now. He's saying, go and I will be with you. This is a positive going. And finally, this is an older song, so I think some of you might know it. Um, da, 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 da. You can go your own way. Yeah, that's is it Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac, go your own way. Listen to it tonight. Um, it's worth knowing. Uh, that is about going your own way, doing your own thing, deciding what you want to do. That's not the kind of going that we're talking about here. Um, I have a close friend who's Australian, and I learned from her that um, when I say... So when we say in Britain, how are you doing? And the normal answer is fine, because we don't really answer that with a full thing. Um, in, in Australia, they say, I can't do an accent, I'm not gonna do it. Um, they say, how are you going? Do you know this? And that's their equivalent. So if they say, how are you going? You'd be like, I'm going great, thanks. If you want to hear an Australian accent after the service, go to Dan, he'll happily do that for you. Um, so when I would ask my friend, how are you doing? Um, she thought always initially that I was asking like for a deep and meaningful conversation about the state of your soul. Like, how are you doing? She was like, I don't, I don't want to answer that now. And if I said, how are you going? She's like, oh, I'm fine. And I think God wants to, us to attend to how we are going a bit like I, was, I would ask my Australian friend. Um, when we think about our tomorrow and this week, where are the places that we are going to be and the people that we are going to meet? Because we're being called to go, and while going, it's a kind of active verb, to make disciples, to introduce people to Jesus, to share his love in words and in actions that they might too repent and believe the good news and follow Jesus as Lord. We've just heard in church news about contemporary carols. This is a prime opportunity, you don't even have to think of how to make disciples and invite people, to invite a friend, or I would say 10 friends. 
I would say 50 friends, because you can either give them one of these and write a personal note on the back, or you can uh, begin to share the social media stuff that we're going to be uh, doing over the next few weeks. Why invite one friend when you could invite all your contacts in Leeds or beyond? People can travel for it. Um, this is a key time to be living out the Great Commission uh, as we head towards Christmas. And I would be so bold as to say, if you are in Leeds and you are coming to Contemporary Carols, there is no excuse to not invite someone to these events. And lots and lots of people from our church are involved in shaping these events and putting them together so that when people come, they hear the gospel in a fresh way that they will understand. Because our going won't all look the same. It's not just cookie kind of cutter, biscuit cutter, like making people that look the same. The kingdom will look different um, in different places. And we are perfectly placed where we are to be going and making disciples and teaching them about Jesus. Notice the teaching comes after the making the disciples. Sometimes we try and teach people to live for Jesus and earn his love before they know him as Lord. And our job is to do the other way around. So I want to encourage you in your going this week, in the next few months, particularly leading up to Christmas. Where are you going and how are you going? Who are you meeting? Who are you living out this uh, commission with? And the last couple of question, uh, pictures are just encouragements. There's the next one. Um, this is when we get to celebrate it together. Tens of, tens of people being confirmed and baptized. And when someone comes to Christ, the whole body of Christ celebrates. And yes, there are real challenges of, of decline, of ambivalence, but also there's gospel stories happening all over the place. And in a couple of weeks in our confirmation, we're gonna hear some of those testimonies and pray for the Holy Spirit. We remember in all of this, Jesus promised, I am with you. This is what makes the difference. We don't go out alone. We're not doing this in our own strength. I am with you. And we see that in one another as well. We don't do this in isolation. We do this as a church. So when we go from here, we'll be sent with this great commission of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.